Living the Dream acknowledges the traditional owners of the land it is recorded on, especially the Jagera and Turrbal peoples, elders past, present and future, and their continuing struggles for justice and self-determination. podcast of the hoo-ha group and you are joined with john and dave john you're on twitter aren't you i am at, at john pacini and In, i am at, at imaginative. what was that inventive and imaginative <laughs> and i am at with sober senses so Much. it's been a while since we've done a show what are we talking about today john we're talking about unfortunately we wish it would all be over but it's not donald trump and the American election, but not as you might expect. We're going to be talking about it as it appears in Australia, because it appears in all sorts of weird and wonderful ways. Yeah, I think we should call it this show. I think we should call it 
do we have to speak talk about Donald? Mm, do we have to talk about Donald? Yes. And and to frame it in the sense of like how does Trump function on the level of ideology in Australia, both yeah. mainstream ideology, but also amongst our friends and comrades to understand, I guess, what is a real phenomena, the kind of rise of the populist right. Does that make sense? Yes. I think Trump is like this kind of incarnation, I guess, of this populist phenomenon, which obviously has a much longer history, mm-hmm. um, which we could talk about. But yeah, like, because, you know, I think he's prominent in Australia because American politics is something that Australians tend to gravitate to. Okay, I think that's actually kind of a worthwhile starting point. Yeah. Is why do we care so much about American presidential elections? Yeah, well, I mean, historically, I guess, since World War II, Australia has been really dependent on America as an ally, so that lends a lot of importance. Both of our major political parties in Australia have deep um, ideological and political links to their counterparts in America. Um, And I guess, you know, similarities of being settler colonial states as well makes it kind of fit. And obviously, America is just a very important country. Like, I think there's a bit of a, like, a misunderstanding, and there has been for a considerable amount of time, about how we understand the American state and how we understand the power of the US president. Yeah, So I think there's kind of like a, like the common sense left understanding of the global order is there something called imperialism or multiple imperialisms? And yeah. the US state is the kind of dominant force in the global order. And yeah. the direction of that US state is largely characterized by the presidential administration. And therefore you get an analysis, which was say during the Bush period, which was everything that is kind of bad in the world can be explained by references to the Bush government or neoconservatives shaping the world in a nefarious way. And then there was a kind of period of optimism and then disappointment uh, around the Obama government, which equally... um, The Obama presidency, isn't it? Because the government's a bit more complicated. Which equally, like, invested the role of president with these kind of world-shaping powers... Yeah. So the kind of fear then of Trump is that this kind of like the iron throne of the global order will be passed to this kind of reactionary populist figure. And I actually think the kind of all the assumptions that under, undergird that are probably incorrect. Yeah. Like that well, they just the really... The president's position is, is, not, is not in and of itself a particularly powerful one. And this is the, the funny thing about it. The, 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 the president in America is the head of state, the head of the head of government, but really only has executive powers that are fairly limited in a lot of ways. And and that's still working within the terrain of like what the state can do. That's yep. before we even think about um, you know, how what how does the state operate in relationship to the dynamics of capital accumulation. That's right. And the, which I think is actually kind of a really crucial point, right? Like by by saying, you know, that George W. Bush is the source of all problems or Obama has a potential to, like, solve the economic crisis or Trump will throw the world into recession. Like, I yeah. think there's kind of, a, like, grains of truth in that policy has some kind of impact. But yeah. it, like, just completely ignores the role of structural forces. 
and yep. and just totally reinvest subjective political forces. And I think yep. that's a total misreading. And I, I would also say this notion of US imperialism is incorrect too, but that's more of a, I guess, a different or bigger argument. But I think all these discussions that are going on reflect those kind of misunderstandings. I think so, yeah. So what are we talking about? Why are we talking about this then? If there's all these misunderstandings. Well, because I guess then to bend the stick back the other way is that obviously it has some kind of influence, right? Like decisions are made where fighter bombers go, decisions are made (laughs) about policy, so that has some kind of role. But it always happens in a position that's already overdetermined. Yeah, but I think some of the other things. Yeah, yeah. Because the other thing I was thinking about is, I guess, it's not surprising that the mainstream political discourse invests so much... Um, emphasis on presidential elections because they place so much emphasis on politics just being what happens in the parliamentary space anyway, right? Yeah, totally. But what's yeah. more interesting is um, like why it is that radical or left spaces mm. and and um, friends and comrades do the same thing. And yeah. I was kind of like thinking historically that I think I could periodize like three common kind of understandings of the world that that um, I experienced since becoming involved in, like, anti-capitalist groups and circles and things like that. Yeah. So, like, the first would be during the 1990s, which was, you know, there was something bad that was happening at the level of policy and we had to defend social democracy, right? And that was the kind of horizon that was kind of a defence of the welfare state against attacks that was being seen by, driven by, like, the the economic rationalism or the new right, and then there was the, the period during the ultra-globalisation movement where there was a real generalisation of actually systemic critique where the way people started talking about things um, was that the problem was actually, if they called it neoliberalism or globalisation or whatever, something deeper and more structural. And no surprise, that this was kind of the heyday in the last 20 years of anarchism as well um, yes. and the particularly kind of more radical versions of anarchism. And then with the anti-war movement, there was like a shift back again to understanding things as the problem was either um, George W. Bush or Howe Ward in the Australian context. So that's kind of interesting that that's happened, you know. Yeah, it is. I'm not sure how that's changed sort of under the Obama presidency, though, because, yeah, like and particularly in the last five years, maybe even 10 years since the financial crisis Mm -hmm. and how much, you know, everyone is now painfully aware of the fact of the decline of American power. Like like Trump's aware of it. Mm -hmm. The Americans are aware of it. You know, like there's a regionalization happening in politics, briefly, um, that that means that, you know, like you can tag Brexit into this, you can tag lots of things into this about how there isn't any longer a global, like the US imperialism is a fairly weak force. You could say, globally speaking, in a lot of in a lot of ways, you know. Well, I guess I'm kind of a signed up true believer of like Hart and Negri's empire thesis when this yep. becomes understood. Like, and so that argument would be that at some period of time, yeah, you know, co- co- as part of globalization, sovereignty shifts from being embodied solely into the na- nation state to either taking a global level where it's a, a composite of nation states supranational organizations and corporations that are kind of the web that holds sovereignty and the u.s as a state certainly had a key role in that but that's a declining role and i guess like sorry keep on going john but certainly i think 
the role of supranational organizations is also lessening and weakening. Although, although potentially we could be seeing the rise of the Commonwealth, with yeah. the whole Brexit thing is another sort of node in this as well. So I'm not entirely convinced. I think, you know, this is an aside here, but, you know, yeah. like the rise of the, the re-emergence of the nation-state, I think, so, could so be marked yeah. in the next 10 years, certainly. So these things are definitely going on. But I guess oh. to, to pull back is, like, yeah, yeah. talking about Trump, but the US presidential election, these kinds of, these concerns aside, yeah. becomes a way of talking about Australia. Yeah. You know, and so I think there was a couple of kind of really interesting um, developments that happened in the media in the last couple of days to which reflected on this. And I'm pretty sure I sent one of them through, and I don't know if I have my paperwork in front of me. So one was an article by John Brogdon. So John Brogdon used to be the Premier of New South Wales. So oh, really? He was a Liberal Premier of New South Wales. And he was speaking now in the Australian Financial Review, representing some kind of like directors of companies group. Is that right? Oh uh, yeah, yeah, that's right. Like the Australian something of company directors. Yeah. So I don't know. I don't know. Fucking hell, that is fun. right. But uh, <laughs> we we assume some kind of group of concerned capitalists. And it was really it was really kind of amazing, right? Because he says, okay, Trump is part of this global phenomenon, and that is totally true. I think that's you know, Trump's not new in some ways. Like, um, I don't know how different you consider his rise from, like, Berlusconi or Le Pen or Orban in Hungary. You know, yeah. I think this, like, in terms of this kind of asshole-ish, fuckwittery, mm. uh, you know, in a, a body, that, a human being that, like, seems to embody the abilities to break the rules from above, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, like, on that note, my friend Lorenzo, like, sent me... This amazing thing on Facebook today, like one was a picture of Berlusconi, like flexing his muscles, and um, <laughs> like, and and um, him putting like a woman's hand to feel his biceps, and then like because the, the conversation we were having is how much these figures, their appeal seems to be that like we there's like this effective investment in being a fuckwit, yeah, like you know all this kind of argument that like. You know, Trump is this kind of sexist, um, yeah, not assaulter, which is I think is true. Like he's a horrific character. I think that actually, and I have no way to prove this because this is making like wild comments about people's subjectivities and psychologies. But I yeah. think a part of the, the the effective investment people have in these figures is because they're horrible. Is because they break all the rules. Yeah, you know that like it's not actually for a certain section section of the investment in Trump. That's you don't shy away from that. But it's kind of that like horrible Nietzschean overman aspect in the most kind of horrid fucked way that people actually get invested with. So he's not new, right? Like, um, no. I mean, you can draw parallels back pretty far if you wanted to. You could call him a Bonapartist figure. You could compare him to, say, um, Peron in Argentina. Mm. You know? Well, I don't know. Like, I think we can get into that, but I think there's probably things like kind of really specific that yeah. is important not to lose. But anyway, yeah, so, not so let's not go lost in the. But so, Brog, so Brogdon writes this article and yeah. he says, so Trump is part of this global phenomena. This global phenomena is something called populism, right? Which is this category that everyone talks about. I'm not really sure what it means. Yeah. Um, and then he says, we have that in Australia in terms of um, Bill Shorten's appeal to fairness, right? <laughs> 
and makes the argument that this kind of populism has prevented legislation in Australia because we now no longer accept that the calculus of government is that if it's better for most people with some people being worse off, then it's okay. We now say everyone must be better off, and this is stopping essential reforms. And then Brogdon lists the reforms that he wants. So, you know, changes to industrial relations legislation, cuts to the company tax rate, um, pretty much actually what is, I guess, now the Turnbull-Morrison agenda, which yep. I think they're going to have even less of a chance to get through Parliament now, whatever <laughs> whatever the hell's happening, right? Like, God knows. it's just the, the constant decay yeah. that's going on. But also what he adds as well is, like, this extra element, which mm. is the the changing of um, government, terms of government to being mandatorily for four years. So yeah. extending the term of government and reducing a bit of democratic participation. So that, I think that's really kind of interesting, like, on one level that the mainstream way that you talk about Trump is he's a symbol of this populist interference with good governance, which apparently is everywhere and anyone can apply with. And the way you deal with it is to enforce this kind of technocratic, anti-democratic stance. Um, Yes. So what do you think? And then I guess the other thing that's really interesting is that, so that's Brogdon from the Liberal Party. But we also then had... um, Corey Bernardi today making a statement yeah. that he supports Trump. And yeah. then I've forgotten the guy's name, like uh, the secretary, I think it was, of the Liberal Party branch from mm-hmm. Carlingford. So that's in the like Hills that's District, the, the kind of northwest of Sydney. Um, trying to get a motion up. I'm not sure if it was at like a federal Liberal meeting or a state Liberal meeting banning all immigration, right? Yeah. And referring to the Donald. <laughs> <laughs> like... Which is like I might if I'm not too out of date, like that terminology of the Donald is kind of like the social media alt right kind of language, right? Yeah, no, I think it is. And I mean just on that last point, I mean there's a lot going on in the New South Wales and the Liberal Party in terms of kind of attempts at destabilization from Tony Abbott and this kind of conflict with there. So I think that maybe the Donald mm-hmm. is being scripted to those purposes more so than being discussed as a figure. I think he's kind of um, maybe being used as a bit of a way to talk about something else mm. in that in that context. And I think that's important to think about as well because in Australia we talk about America like when we talk about China. We're often not talking about America or China. Mm-hmm. This is what Brogdon's doing. He's not actually talking about America, obviously, because he stops that pretty quickly. Yeah, About two paragraphs where he talks about, about Trump and then he's straight into, you know, pretty much what sounds like a membership boost. Mm. It's an obscure organization. <laughs> Basically. Um, and yeah, look, it's, a, it's so, a, using hodgepodge of different, of different things that he wants. What were you going to say? So that means kind of like, is the argument that when the mainstream political discourse yeah. talks about Trump, yeah. what they combine yeah. is talking about a kind of reactionary nationalism yeah. with also a fear of popular yeah. democratic interruption yeah. to technocratic government. And I'm, 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 I'm pretty sure that Bill Shorten would be happy to be have the, the word popular used in relation to him. Even but, in, uh, popular, even, okay, well, maybe I should say populist, right? Like, <laughs> this word that everyone uses, but until historical materialism at the end of November about populism, we won't know what it actually means. So, I, look, I'm not a specialist in the term, and I think people use it um, in a number of different ways. Exactly. But that's really kind of like... Interesting, isn't it? This kind of fusion we're talking about reactionary nationalism yeah. and 
popular or populist participation yeah. in governance have been confused as the same thing. Yeah. And I think that that's not too weird in the American context because I think that that was kind of the core in a way of the of the of the of the settlement of, in the south sort of the way that the democrats prior to 1968 mm-hmm. when Richard Nixon um, did the southern strategy and the silent majority and, and whatnot and was able to bring those people from the democratic to the republican party prior to that the democratic party really adopted a, a, a two-pronged strategy of, pop, of economic populism and kind of racialist nationalism where they mm-hmm. would say but basically, black people were second-class citizens, and that was normalized. But on the same hand, white Americans were oppressed by banks and were oppressed by government. So I think that that's not necessarily an alien concept mm-hmm. so in the American context. So there's a historical priest. Like, yeah, historically, you, I mean, I you could argue you... that the trade union movement in Australia adopted a similar sort of policy, but not the same, I wouldn't say. I think that's true, like, you know... Okay, there's two different things here, right? Because I think part of the way that also Trump is talked about, similar to Brexit, mm. is that what we have is a mobilisation of the losers of the process of globalisation. Yeah. Right? So what's you know, white, the white working class is the term that's often used. I think we've said it before and we've said it again. I think um, Ash Sarkar kind of demolishes that term. And your mate Evan wrote something on this notion of the white working yes. class. Well, did, you, well, did you read that? I, I did, yeah. I mean, I think he discusses it more in the context of the trade unions and the way that, I guess, like, historically, the trade union movements um, in a lot of you know, Anglo countries um, appealed to notions of whiteness, I think. And this leads to a certain construction of the white, of the white working class, I think, because mm-hmm. of the way that the trade unions attempted to mobilise their base and to support their base which was overwhelmingly white, to protect, you know, in Australia, the working man's paradise. Yeah, because that's, that's essentially, like, people don't like talking about the Labour Party and the trade union movement and social democracy, essentially, in this way, right? But Yeah, social like, democracy was a racialized compact. The, like, the, the core, yeah, so definitely, I'm trying to find, like, I've got it in front of me at the moment, this, like, amazing quote from, um, from Power Without Glory, Frank yes. Harvey's novel that kind of yes. like that fictionalizes like the rise of the Labour Party, its links to organized crime and Catholicism, yeah. and like they describe like the left position yeah. at the top. Like I'm trying to find it's perfect where the left position like a fairer deal for the working man, arbitration and exclu- and exclusion of the Chinese. This is a basic principle of the basically not only the Labour Party but the Federation of Australia. Is that that was central? Was that the the whole federation compact that Labor signed onto, and that yeah. the capitalists endorsed at the same time, begrudgingly perhaps, mm-hmm. was the harv- was what became the harvester judgment in terms of that there was to be arbitration, that there were to be awards, that there were to be workers' protection, but that that, that was to be supported by a system of racial exclusion. And like Humphrey McQueen, like makes the same argument right in in New Britannia. Yeah, that the the the, class, the labor movement of the late nineteenth century and for the majority mm. of the twentieth century until the sixties, yeah, um, was yeah. was really one that didn't take like the struggle against yeah. capital, yeah. but rather attempted to maintain like a lower, um, like to maintain a higher income through reducing the size of the labor market 
three yep. things was explicitly. But I found the quote right. So, yep. All right. so they're talking about the Labor Party in the early 1900s. The yep. political Labor Council ran candidates in industrial areas throughout the 90s. By 1901, when it became part of the Australian Labor Party, there were 14 Labor members of the Victorian Parliament. Their policy was similar to some, to those of some Liberal members. An eight-hour day, industrial arbitration, exclusion of Asiatics, early closing of hotels, etc. And that's yep. from Frank Hart. It's like it's such a perfect quote, right? Like it, it captures just that entire, not just I guess the politics of the time, but just mm-hmm. the sexual values of the time. So I think that's that's for us on the left, right? Like you know, if we want to use that term, or at least because some kind of emancip- commitment to an emancipatory anti-capitalist politics. Yeah. Like so, part of the problem is then like Trump is talked about to symbolise this phenomena where people are attempting to talk about um, or have a political movement around, say, the inequalities and transformations of the capitalist economy that have happened over the last 40 years, and they do so in a way that's essentially racialized. So that's part of our argument is that's not new. No. And actually what we like to look back at, which is the internationalist tendency, has actually been an insurgent struggle inside and against the official labour movement and trade unions, you know, honourably fought by communists, the new left, and quite crucially and importantly in Australia, uh, workers that were part of the um, migrant communities in the post-Second World War, who also obviously were often communists and parts of the new left as well too. And often were, uh, communists were often militantly anti-communist as well, which led to the Communist Party in Australia actually opposing immigration from Baltic nations after World War Two, because they're considered to be anti-communist. Yeah, it's more problematic, isn't it? It's deeply problematic, yeah. yeah. But to be provocative, to talk about the left and the right, you could say that in the 1960s in Australia and America, the left lost its, lost its purchase on racism, in that the Labour Party abandoned the white Australia policy. It had been the biggest supporter of it, and the Democrats um, abandoned their uh, support for Southern racism, mm-hmm. the South, and that the Republicans and the right seized racism, and it became their force. Mm. So that's something, maybe it's provocative, maybe it's not true, but it's certainly something that uh, we might want to think about. Yeah. And I guess the other thing that's kind of important to, I guess, comment about this is that when Trump is often talked about, um, similar to Brexit or whatever, yeah. it often become, sometimes becomes like this kind of justification, which again, I think Ash Sarkar has really nailed, yeah. which is that this is not really about race. No. Uh, this is about economic problems that, mm-hmm. fo- that that are motivating this racism. Yeah. Like, I think there's that's wrong, and yeah. it's much more important to kind of frame. But but there's a right like core to it at some level. Yeah. And I think it's more important to kind of talk about in the way of saying what is happening is mm-hmm. the questions of economic inequality, capitalist crisis, and malfunction. Yeah. are being framed and thought about through ideologies of racism yeah. that, that exist and have a materiality in and of themselves yeah. rather than to have simply crisis is happening, therefore the racism exists. Mm. Because I think we could equally say, like, in times of um, economic growth and prosperity, yeah. it's not like these states were necessarily less racist or... No. The racist ideology, like, because if you want to think about in Australia, like the kind of organisation of racism in, in Australia, like in terms of the detention centres, for example, yes. coincides with the mining boom. Mm. 
mm. which is actually, okay, on one hand, that's a time where capital share of income versus labour grows, but yep. experientially, most households in Australia, so that's like most you know, um, proletarian working-class households, experience mm. it as a time of incredible growth in wealth. Yeah. Right? But that's also the time of the intensified borders regime. So I think that kind of reductive way. I guess the other thing that's important about in mainstream kind of um, discourse, like debates and ideology, is that Trump is talked about to say as if racism is a product of the losers of the world. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you could definitely say that, like, the way that Trump gets mapped onto one nation Mm -hmm. in Australia. And I don't think that that's necessarily true either. It's really interesting also to think about some of these discussions, like the discussion between Seth Ackerman, mm-hmm. Ackerman and... In Jacobin. Jacobin. And this other article that I just read, I forget the name of the author and the publication. The publication's Orchestrated Pulse. Orchestrated Pulse, that's right. Yeah, really great. I'm just thinking about this kind of problematic... The, and that's the know, debating the deplorables, how the left can yeah. and cannot win Trump voters by yeah. Ray Valentine. And, yeah, that's right. And I think... Yeah, it's it's really interesting to think about the way that that um yeah that those two articles kind of frame the the problem of racism because on the one hand you kind of looking at these opinion polls that seem to indicate that people are actually getting less hateful, which is what you imagine when you have multicultural societies, multiracial societies, mm. people become more accepting over time, but they're still stuck politically in these kind of racialized frameworks mm-hmm. because that's how the political class still appeals to people. You know, so despite the way that society is becoming less racist, politics is staying racist. This is something that's interesting, I think, in Australia to maybe think about as well, is that when you actually look at people's opinions on, I mean, you know, there was that that, that opinion poll on, on Islam, which might be worth discussing, which was had some pretty horrendous results. But overall, you're looking at people generally being quite supportive of accepting refugees, mm-hmm. but politics being more and more racist, you know? So how do you, well, how do you make sense of that? I don't know. I don't know. I think that there's something about the isolation of politics from society, maybe. And that, the that, sounds, that sounds very left flank esque. Mm, is that is that dangerous? No, I don't think it's dangerous. Either. I think it, I, just don't, I don't think I really understand it. Like, no, does that make sense? Either. Like, this is what I'm trying um, to sort through, I think, as well. Because I I think I don't really like in in my mind, like if I'm yep. attempting to like make sense of the world. Yeah. Right. Like one thing I think I can say that exists is the capitalist mode of production. Yeah. Right. So that's the organisation of human activity, where basically around taking money to transform it into more money. Yeah. Right. And this can exist because it's embedded and reproduces a whole series of relationships around things like gender and yep. sexuality. Yes. And then there's like a state which is like both embedded and dependent on the rhythms of the capitalist mode of production, but also yep. as the primary force that operates, or a primary, a force. <laughs> uh, as soon as you say the primary, you're like, well, maybe it isn't. Um, yeah. <laughs> like uh, a primary, fo- a, a force that a works to reproduce capitalist society as a society, right? And then there's this thing called politics. Yeah. You know, which, like, I'm not sure what that is because I think... In some ways, like it's like political parties, it's voting, it's membership organisations, it's yeah. maybe I don't know people in the media yeah. that kind of like debate what and contest what is happening in that social order, 
they understand it in a weird way. Like, uh, I think that's one of the things I'm really obsessed with is how, like, no one who tries to guide capitalist society through the state actually understands it. Like, they just kind of, like, misread it in different ways. Like, yeah. you know, Keynes... Keynes ideologies. Yeah, well, like, Keynes wasn't right, but he was useful. No. Hayek wasn't yeah, right, like, but he was useful. Put that Pardon? Put that on a T-shirt. He wasn't right, but he was used. But that's really interesting, right? Like Because, you know, you normally get these kind of left arguments, which is, you know, ca- capitalists or actors for capital understand the problems of capitalism and then do something to react to those problems. Yeah. I think, actually, they don't understand it. <laughs> like, like it's you know, there's this horrible article in Journal of Australian Political Economy by yeah. Tom Bramble mm. where he's like, okay, how do you understand the Turnbull government or the Liberal government, it's like they look at capitalism, they see that there's a declining rate of profit or whatever he thinks the problem is, therefore they construct this legislation, right? Like, (laughs) which which is, I think is wrong, like, on two different levels. Like, on one level, like, capitalist society actually is self-obscuring. Like, the fetishised nature of the commodity and value means that when you're in it, it's self-obscuring. The kinds yeah. of knowledge we can produce are always kind of weird statistical knowledges looking backwards, and yeah. these people are enmeshed in ideology, yeah. right? So they don't get it. So I think it's like this space called politics. I'm not really sure, like, what that is. Like, yeah. I, I, like, I don't think I have, like, a proper theoretical understanding of it. Mm. And then I think there's this argument when, when we're talking about Trump, right? Yeah, um, or the rise of right-wing ethno-nationalist populism, or actually radical populism as well. Because I guess in mainstream debates, these kind of you know Trump equals Bernie, right equals left. Yeah. You know, like um, not that I'm like saying Bernie's brill. Um, like I forgot my point now. Mm. It was going to be brilliant. <laughs> I, I have no doubt. Like it's it's just like so. There's this argument that politics is somehow degenerating but i don't know what it was that it wasn't degenerating if that makes sense yeah is like, it I, I, degenerating is it always politics is like a catch up with society yeah politics is in this constant catch up motion i've been like with re- society. i like i've and I, I don't know i've been reading what i think is one of the best books of the 21st century which is paolo verno's a grammar of the multitude Mm. And I think it's kind of interesting, relevant for this in two ways, because he does kind of like want to talk about a theory of politics. Yeah. And like he says, kind of, you know, there's previously been this discussion that there's this thing called politics, there's yeah. this thing called labor, and there's this thing called thought. Um, mm. But like in Forder, in post Fordist capitalism, so what we exist in now, yeah. they all kind of collapse into each other. Mm. Like when, like what you normally think about as politics, which is people coming together for deliberative action, yeah. is actually now what happens in the workplace, mm. right? Like you know, yeah. people don't spend that much time in political meetings if they spend a lot of time in meetings, though, right? Yeah. So he says like <laughs> politics has come in to despair, like has come into disrepute because it appears to be like a bad version of what we do at work, right? Like, yeah, but yeah. also like. What he's saying is super interesting because I was reading this article from, I think it was like 2005, it was translated in English, so who knows how old it is. And he's talking about new European fascism. And I don't know if Trump's a fascist, like I just don't know, right? Like what does that mean anyway? But the thing that's really interesting about this is he says like, you know, fascism is always like the twin of radical politics. Mm. Like the, okay. it, it mobilizes the same resources that radical politics 
tries to to mobilize. Yeah. But it just mobilizes it in like a different way for a different aim. Yeah. So like the way that you respond to this kind of reactionary populism can't be a defense of the status quo. No. Like so like the defense the opposition to Trump can't be defense of Hillary. You know that um the opposition to one nation can't be the defense of like state policy if that makes sense it has to be like a different mobilization yeah of the same the same kind of like anger organization and energy if that makes sense yeah no, i think i think that that's that's right i think people get caught up in this kind of like saying this kind of formalistic reading of, of, of Trump and the left, and they say, oh, Trump's a fascist, as such people who who have similar views to him are also fascists. Yeah. And, you know, because Trump's views, a lot of Trump's views are quite to the left. If you, for them, if you, as you have, put yourself through. Listen. I don't know, I've been, I just spent, like, the last three days listening to, like, three different Trump speeches. <laughs> and what did you find out? Like, I think... Um... What did I find out? Like this, I I I think it's pretty bad, right? Like, it's super interesting. It is a, he it, the politics, as the young people say, are cooked. That's, <laughs> is, that how, is that how you use that line? Yes. Yeah. Well, so like, what argument does he make? So he makes makes this argument, which is okay. Why is there economic dysfunction in the United States? Mm. He says economic dysfunction happens in the United States because there is um. Trade deals were negotiated where the U.S. negotiators were in the pay to foreign powers, right? And that actually the story of neoliberalism has been the story of Mexico getting rich at the U.S.'s expense. We should tell the Mexicans about that. Yeah, so, and, and then the kind of solution is, like, I, as Trump, mm. will intervene yeah. Using my superior negotiation in a way that reverses this, mixed yeah. with like punishment for companies that leave. Yeah. So it's like companies who leave, say, if they want to then import back in the US, will have punishing tariffs. Yeah. And then internally, you have an economic policy where um, you cut taxes for everyone and you increase deficit spending. Yeah. With the hope that you've brought back growth through your... And the other thing that's really important is, like, I think you can't separate what he says economically about the border and tariffs yeah. from what he says about the border with Mexico. Yeah. Totally. Right? And like, and if you actually watch these speeches, he'll be talking about tariffs and people start cheering and yelling, build a wall. Yeah. You know, like, in, in their minds, they're linked, right? Yeah. Like, as much as you can... I'm sure you can say, well, you didn't interview everyone. But in terms of what you hear people yelling at, at that speech. Yeah. Right? Um, so I think when people go, oh, look, he has this left-wing yeah. politics, yeah. only to the sense that maybe a lot of the historical left has been shit. Yeah. You know, if that makes, like... Yeah. So you could, I think you could theoretically argue that at best his pol- that kind of approach is maybe similar to, like, kind of like South Korean, Asian development state kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. You know, like because the, the South Korea did something like that in terms of shipping. Yeah. Right. Like, um, 
and demand like demanded that non-Korean boats had to pay I think huge taxes on everything so that they were importing to the to yeah. South Korea something like that yeah. I can't remember the exact and and so boats started being made in, in South Korea I think it's totally different in the way that the global economy is is set up where you know basically the US exports um, you know debt and buys in products but like so that's the core of it i don't I, so people say look there's this left claim to it i don't think that is a left claim except for the fact that the left has often been bad because it's not understood what capitalism is and like maybe it's left in the sense that you're talking about that most of social sure. democratic settlement was inherently racialized because i think this yeah. is yeah unbelievably racialized but he does it in enough of a level of sophistication where you know, he'll talk about the border with mexico and then the next line will be Mexicans are wonderful people. Yeah. Um, I met the president. Yeah. He's agreed that they're going to build. The, they're going to pay for the wall. Yeah. One hundred percent. Yeah. Right? Like, um, which is total. You know, and that's interesting too, right? That like, um, when we're talking about authoritarian nationalism today. Yeah. They can't be racist in the old sense. Yeah. That's, that's, that's interesting as well. Yeah. And I think that ties into like kind of the lessons in a way that were learned in the sixties, mm -hmm. going back to Richard Nixon and the Southern strategy. And they're very explicit. We can't use the N word anymore. We mm -hmm. need to use inner city communities, mm -hmm. you know, so they're very conscious and these documents are on the record. You can, you can view them. So they're very aware of this. And this is kind of like a tool that's been, uh, that's been employed for a very long time. And in a way, he kind of like is using it to such a point where you almost can't tell the difference mm -hmm. between the kind of. And he's talking about there are some bad hombres out there, <laughs> yeah, Latino Latino men, and there's all this kind of like he's not even really trying, yeah, to hide it. So it's kind of a and, and particularly from like refugees and Muslim migration, right? Like yeah, it's, totally. it's, it's yeah. just off the hook. And yep. there's other coded things, you know, in terms of Black Lives Matter. I guess that's the other thing that we haven't kind of talk, talked about is, like, yeah. you know, the Trump-Hillary election yeah. is also a way of people talking about understanding, like, the broader crisis too. Yeah. You know, in the American society, it's been, like, eight years of the financial crisis. Um, it's been yeah. kind of, like, it's not... The, the bandages have been put on, but there's not a lot of healing in terms of the, the mode of production. And yeah. then there's been a whole wave of like quite intense social struggles. Yeah. Black Lives Matters. Like off the top of my head, I'd say Black Lives Lives Matter. Matter. Um, like the struggles over raising the minimum wage, and now this kind yeah. of confrontation at Standing Rock. Yes. You know, which is really impressive and amazing and terrifying and incredible, right? So, mm. like these social struggles are simultaneously happening. That these figures are, are the way that people talk about this stuff, I guess. Yeah. Um, so it's interesting, right? And then I guess the other thing is that except for like Bernardi and some others, yeah, you would say like all of the Australian political class are anti-Trump. Mm. You would. So what's, a, what's that about? Yeah. Well, Tony Abbott isn't, which is interesting. And I think this is about how you got to kind of divorce Trump as he exists in America from Trump as he is registered in Australia and how it becomes kind of like a political tool in Australia. Because, you know, what what Abbott's trying to... Abbott's really keen, seemingly, on presenting himself as an international figure, as someone who's like, particularly in the boat stuff in Europe, 
Mm-hmm. Look at the way he's presented himself as kind of like, I'm the guy who stopped the boats. I'm the guy who you can, you know, and you need to have an Australian-style immigration policy and whatnot. So I'm wondering how much his calls to Trump are actually about a calls for himself. Yeah, yeah. And he's saying, you know, he's saying, look, Trump is, he said he is like, most of Trump's positions are not far from that of a normal conservative, which is ridiculous. Which, which, um, which I guess is like, well, sorry, do you want to, I interrupt. No, 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 you. Well, because this the other thing is, right, like on one hand, like if, you know, I've got an article in front of me from like Paul Kelly. Yeah, yeah. Um, from The Australian, right? So from the main broadsheet, right-wing paper. Paul Kelly's kind of a standard centre-right nutbag. Not, not a nutbag, more of a fuckwit. Um, <laughs> I'd like to get you to define this term. Well, nutbag has some kind of Im- idea that he's like a loose cannon, right? Where like Paul Kelly's more of that staid centre-right crackpot realism sanity. Yeah. Where his article is Trump exposes loss of American virtue. Yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. So it's this kind of conserv- conservative Adorno, um, <laughs> which is, you know, society's breaking down and that's what it's being manifested in Trump. Yeah. Right? So on one hand, you've got all of the political class. Trump is terrible. Hillary needs to win because... He- that's really weird. Like, is that just sexist that we refer to Trump by his last name and Clinton by her first name? Like. Well, yes, but also it would kind of be confusing because there's, you know, she's like the second person to have a go at the presidency who's had the name Clinton. But we talked about George W. w. Bush. He got more of a name. He didn't get less of a name. Yes. This is interesting. So maybe, well, I, I think, you know, what's the other thing? Hillary Rodham Clinton? Yes, H- HRC. HRC. Which I think in some ways, like, to be fair, I've been watching a whole bunch of Hillary campaign videos. Yeah, yeah. And those campaign videos do promote HRC yeah. often as Hillary. Yeah, yeah. So it's, re- it's really quite interesting. If you go to, like, uh, Trump, there's a lot of speeches of, of him giving these orations. And then if you go to the Clinton YouTube page, there's yeah. a lot of ads that are about stories. Yeah, where he's a slick marketer and he's the kind of, like, he's me talking for an hour. Yeah, See, I, I think... Thing. Like, I kind of think, like, um, I think there's something else, and we'll, we'll kind of get to that in a moment, because if what is this is about is about a global condition. But anyway, so, like, um, so you have all of the kind of political class, whatever that thing is, lining yeah. up to say um, Hillary should win. Yeah. She needs to win for sanity. At very least. Because, because she, she represents sanity, right? Yeah. But then I think if you look at, like, Theresa May, Prime Minister of Great Britain. Yeah. Um, if you look at her... Conservative Party speech, mm. it was a much more polished, sophisticated yeah. version of the, of the kind of politics Trump talks about. Yeah. Which was about against mm. global capital, the thing we need to maintain is a state intervention to maintain an orderly society. Mm. And linking as well, like economic inequality that of the last that has developed under neoliberalism for lack of a better term with yep. the problems of cosmopolitan culture and immigration. Mm. You know, so that's that's pretty interesting, right? And then you're talking about, you know, Abbott might have the same kind of phenomena. Yeah, so maybe what we're looking at here is like a kind of a the 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 maybe the way that these particular spokespeople of capital are articulating this is like the worst of both worlds. So mm-hmm. on the hand you've got this kind of leftist, you know, in inverted commas, protectionism mm-hmm. and racism, 
to this righteous authoritarianism. Yeah. Okay, so um, let's shift from how the mainstream of the political class talks about Trump to start thinking about how Trump is thought about, I guess, like amongst what we might call the left or anti-capitalists or whatever terminology, and then maybe we'll get to we, like us and our friends. Yeah. Um, So... Van Batten had a column in the Australia uh, in the Guardian today. Did you read yeah. it? Yeah. What, mm. what was it? Well, I mean, this is interesting because we haven't really talked a lot about about Hillary. Maybe ex- it exposes our bro brochialism. Is that yeah. is that the term? But I think it's important to think about the way that we think about Hillary. The way that Barton, I think, talks about Hillary is maybe sim- because she's kind of like trying to relive what Gillard could have been, mm-hmm. in a way. I think there's something in there. But basically her argument is that, that, that Hillary is that, that, that Hillary is the apotheosis of Trump, that Hillary is not only the lesser evil but the better candidate, that she's an activist, that she's fought for women. You know, there's this very, I don't know, it doesn't really hold together particularly well. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't at all talk about, it wouldn't fly in America because it doesn't talk at all about 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 the race issue, mm-hmm. you know. So it's kind of interesting. It's American politics interpreted by an Australian yeah. for a very Australian purpose, I think. So I think like he's Australia- not talking about America at all in yeah. that piece, really. So talk, talking about the Labor Party. He's talking about the Labor Party under Gillard. Leftist Gillard behind the Labor Party. You still there, John? Yes. Um, so I think there's kind of two different ways that. The I hear friends and comrades and then the wider left talk about the US election. Yeah. So the first is lesser evilism. Yeah. Right? Um, but I think it's even more than lesser evilism. Like, I think Clinton represents, like, the normality of capitalism. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. And Trump represents a worse aberration. Yeah. And I think, like, the world is so fucking crazy right now Mm. that with, like, the absence of a real emancipatory movement on the horizon, and maybe I'm over-egging that, maybe there's lots of, like, is antecedents the right word or precedents? Precedents. Precedents of, like, a rising, what could become the social movement of the future, right? I don't want to be too, like, there are no struggles. Yeah. that the desire for capital to at least be competently run yeah. is almost like the limit of the horizon of a lot of people's aspirations just because <laughs> everything seems to be going down the toilet. Yeah, there's, you know, a, there's a lot in that, I think. You know, so and then it's so at least if we have that, yeah. you know. then there'll be competent management to this horrible situation yeah, where yeah. what we'll have with Trump is just like a nightmare. Yeah. But I guess, like, and so it's like Trump is the worse, Clinton is the bad. Yeah. But the only thing I can think to about that is that the bad is also already worse. <laughs> You're like, cause that, like, how fucking bad does it have to be? Yeah. Yeah. Like, like, you know, we're talking, if we're talking about the United States, we're talking a situation where there was, you know, a financial crisis. We've had the normality and even the optimism, right? A yeah. financial crisis where, like, Finance capital was bailed out by trillions of dollars, right? Yeah. Huge impoverishment. And then there's been nothing that's been able to be done about that. Yeah. Horrific kind of climate change. 
yeah. problems. And then if you think about the struggle of like of Black Lives Matter, what is that? Is it matters or matters? Black, Black lives. lives Matter. Matter. Black so there's lives. no S. There's no right. S. Like, what do you think that's a, that? What's that about? That's about here of a society that is you know deeply racialized, historically built on slavery. Where yeah. over the last forty years, a whole bunch of the population have been both racialized and made surplus, right? Yeah. You know, so a lot of the kind of communization theories right. people talk about this, you know, these popular being made surplus. And then since they've been made surplus, yeah. rather than being integrated into capitalist mode of production, they've just been policed by yeah. by an extra paramilitary force, which yeah. has hit the point where killing people has mm. become a fundamental part of how that machine operates, right? Yeah, yeah. Like yeah. that's the norm. Yeah. And that's like that's that's what people are actually defending, which is much like when people say, oh, the Labour Party in Australia isn't that bad. Well, what you're actually supporting is the offshore detention system. Sorry. And this is at the centre, I think, of Barden's problem in that she wants to articulate a left politics mm-hmm. within the Labour Party, but she has to work within the Labour Party as it exists, which is supportive of, even if there are people in the party who oppose offshore detention, is supportive of, of offshore detention and actually fundamentally create a lot of the policies connected with it. And that's what I think the article's about, more so than about the American election, you know. Mm. Although Australia does seem to produce some of the worst electoral commentary about America. I don't know why. But it's there. It's a fact. Because um, the commentary is just fucked, aren't they? Like, yeah, yeah. It's, it's just, I can't believe they get paid to write this shit. Um, yeah. But I think there's, I think, like, and I must admit, like, psychologically myself, yeah. right, I will find if if Clinton wins the election, yeah, I think I will have a sigh of relief, mm. right? Like, yeah, because at some kind of like emotional level, yeah, part of me is invested that this faith in the, the normal running of things, yeah, you know, and it's like um, it reminded me of when Badu was writing about. Sarkozy, yeah, yeah. Um, in his book, the what is the meaning of Sarkozy or the meaning of Sarkozy? I can't remember the exact title right now. Where yeah. he says Sarkozy mobilizes fear. Mm. The opposition to Sarkozy mobilizes the fear of fear. Yeah. Right. Like in the same yeah. way, I think, you know, the lesser evilism is we could say perhaps like one of the the effective engagement of of Trump is fear. And yeah. then, like, um, it's kind of great because, like, Badu says, you know, Sarkozy mobilizes, like, the kind of bluster of the little police officer. Yeah. Right? Yeah, like, yeah. and I think, like, Trump's a different figure, but almost kind of similar. Like, it's quite yeah. ridiculous, but this, you know, yeah. like, so it's fear that's mobilizing this project. And then Clinton's support is the fear of fear. You know, in the yeah. same way, in the Australian level, is you could say, okay, one nation mobilizes fear. And yeah. I think the thing that's really interesting about that is the fear is totally fucking irrational. Yeah. Right? Like, yeah. Um, like, it, like it, whatever these, like, whenever you look at the essential claims of the authoritarian right parties, the things people are scared of have no basis in reality. No. You know, so that's kind of, like, and, and um, that's really interesting, and I think we should think about why that, that exists. But mm. then the opposition is, like, not often, like, a positive project. It's just fear of the damage that this could cause. Yeah. And like Bajou's point, and he made it earlier in, when he wrote in 2002 about Le Pen as well, is that ultimately this is going to fail. 
right? Mm. Like that. Not only is it kind of not really worth much in itself, but it's not like def- just defending what is because you're afraid of things being worse. Is just not good enough, even if it's understandable. No, and, and can also work against like the investment and investigation attempts to develop actually emancipatory struggles. Mm. Um, which I think you can also see in the kind of Clinton poll or in Van Batten's piece, right? Like, you know, it's kind of directed, like it's kind of weird, right? Because it's like, why fight this argument against, you know, brochalists, manichists and Bernie supporters now Yeah, in, in Australia? Yeah. Right? Like, no, like, except very few Australians who are reading The Guardian are going to vote in the US election. Yes. Um, and, and like, why, why be invested in that? Yeah. But it's it's all like so that that's interesting in itself, right? Because it's all messed up in domestic politics, and I think that's that's actually what this is about. Mm-hmm. I think that's the central thing to take away, you know, not to sound like a broken record, mm-hmm. but I think that it is a lot of what she was writing about is really just about, you know, like some people were joking about, you know, her her attempt to be pre-selected for ALP, mm-hmm. and I'm like, yeah, that's probably not that's probably not far off it. Yeah. So when when so basically to boil it down is that yep. conversations about the US elections yep. are partly about the US but mainly about that a similar kind of why yep. a similar kind of dynamic is being played out in Australia as it's being played out everywhere. Yeah, I mean obviously but you know, only in this kind of weird, disjointed way because Australia's had such a funny experience, as we've talked about so much mm. on this show, a really funny experience of the global financial crisis. Yeah. The other thing that's probably worth talking about as well is um, there's this line that I want to use f- from a Benjamin... Is it Kunkel? Is that how you say his name? Kunkel? I don't know, but potentially. Benjamin Kunkel. It's from his article, Sweet 16 Notes on the US Election, mm. um, where he... Let me just get it up here. Um, where he's talking about... Um, Okay, like the argument against Sanders, and he's saying it's similar to Corbyn in the US by the more right of the party. Mm. Um, where he says um, that you know that. Okay, so the approach seems likely to feature in the national politics of both countries as long as Democratic or Labour voters favour a social democratic program over the dead centre's neoliberal holding pattern. At one moment trimming left towards public provision, another moment trimming right towards further privatisation, but basically circling in a place while economies grow less dynamic and incomes more unequal. Unable to defend this complacency on its old term, terms, the centre-left first warns that nobody advancing a more attractive program can be elected. Mm. To the extent that this stops being convincing, it tallies up discrediting examples of left hypocrisy, ideally unrepresentative, if need be, imaginary. Identitarian neoliberalism will always find populist challenges at once insufficiently radical, uh, at once excessively radical and insufficiently woke, right? (laughs) And, like, I was kind of looking at this line and I thought, you know, identitarian neoliberalism, yeah. Um, now, I would want to preface this by, like, I'm not particularly interested in, like, suddenly having a diversion into a cheap critique of identity politics, right? Because um, and I've been practicing this in my head. A, when people say identity politics, it refers to far too many things. Mm. B, there are so many different kind of critiques of identity politics that I don't want to be associated with the wrong one. Yeah. But 
also C, I'm not sure if I jumped from A to C there. I think the most important <laughs> one is that like the dominant identity politics in a country like Australia is actually Australian nationalism. Yeah. You know, that um, like identity politics that starts by going, oh, I want to critique kind of some form of indigenous nationalism is totally starting at the wrong place, right? Yeah. But that said, like, it was only when I was like watching the Hillary videos that I actually realised that the term identitarian neoliberalism is actually a really useful term yeah. to describe those videos because the, the videos are really interesting. And um, so this is the mobilisation of Hillary's ideology where, like, basically you don't hear a lot about Clinton's politics. No. Um, what you do get are all these stories about that Clinton cares about specific issues yeah. and specific people. Yeah. And the, the different people that are linked, are, like there's a lot of people from Afro-American backgrounds that appear in these videos. There's yeah. like a lot of women. Um, gay marriage is there. The yeah. Khans, so the, the parents of um, like yeah. the, the, um, the American Muslim soldier who was killed. Yeah. And then there's a very similar story about a family who were undocumented migrants to the US, right? So I think like reading this concept in like a... A generous fashion. Yeah. Like, so not just trying to knock it down. Like, it's a politics yeah. where it says all these people exist in this society. Mm. The Clinton campaign gives expression to their existence. <laughs> right? Like, yeah. it doesn't alter. And it, so it says you have things like Clinton cares about racial injustice. Right? Yes. Um, Clinton cares about gun violence. Mm. So it's not this notion that there's a kind of a political program that can really address any of these things. No. It's more that they find an expression. And I guess, like, yeah. in the same way that yeah. Trump's campaign is also identity politics. Yeah. Right? Like, ethno-nationalist politics is also an identity politics. Yeah. If you were any of the kinds of forms of life, any of the kinds of lifestyles, any kind of the kinds of existences that sit outside the core of the Trump group. Yeah. You kind of get, like, I kind of see, like, that the Clinton campaign is not worth nothing. Does that make sense? Mm. Like, even though, like, identitarian neoliberalism can't probably solve the issues it seeks to give name to, it's yeah. not like it's totally void, right? Like... Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think this just the whole idea of identity politics. Mm. I think it's just something that's shared across the Labour and the Democrat Party, Labour and the Democratic parties, in that mm. when they moved away, when the Democrats moved away from their support of Southern racism, mm. and when the Labour Party moved away from its support of White Australia, they also moved away from economic populism. Mm -hmm. Both of whom adopted a form of economic populism in favour of kind of middle class identity politics, where they started to appeal to multiple different social movements, or what were social movements at the time were bureaucratized, I think, during that period as well. Mm -hmm. So instead of trying to form a base of, an of a politics that deals with the economic realities of society, they instead try to form, I guess, like a hodgepodge of causes and ideas and identities that, they then, that are then their electoral alliances. And this functions in Australia as well. The AOP, AOP has been very good at appealing to ethnic, what used to be called ethnic, but now called, I guess, multicultural communities. Mm -hmm. And particularly also, I guess, the same-sex marriage, the same thing, you know. So obviously, Hillary's drawing on the same packet. Yeah. I, feel like I always want to have it emphasised in those conversations, like, that, that happened yeah. not, like, because these were real struggles, 
yeah. with real concerns that yeah. threw the social order into kind of disarray, if that makes sense. Yeah. Like, uh, yeah. like that, like, cause I think I'm not saying that you're saying it as a temptation or like an old left temptation that is, you know, if only, you know, yeah. the, the Labor Party stopped worrying about um, people's cultural needs and only what was happening at the point of production, life would just be swell. Yeah. You know, and I think that's kind of no, wrong. Economic reasons why those changes happen. Yeah. Like, and ideological reasons as well. That's a whole mess of different, you know, transnational ideas that were circulating at the time about economics. Mm. And I think about, and obviously these social movements had the same effect as well. Like, they were, like, it's not anything just to do with the fact that they just decided to choose. All right, well, I guess we should probably sum up because we've got an hour of, of show. We do. It's probably part too long. I know, I've got to help put my son to bed. How is your son still awake? I want to go to sleep. Yeah, I want to go to sleep too. So, right. so, look, the election's happening next week. It, it looks is. like, um, like it looks like Clinton will probably win, but it's kind of this incredible vertigo, right? Like, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, there's this crisis over emails, which I don't really understand. Yeah. Um, there's, but there's this kind of panicked debate happening here yeah. because Trump is a symbol of, I think, a very real phenomena, yeah. which is a rise of some kind of reactionary nationalism yeah. that has uh, an economic project which is different from the neoliberal project of the last 40 years. Probably not, yeah. you know, not that it'll really do anything. No. And in the absence of, like, an equally full-throated radical social movement, yeah. There's a temptation to kind of limit our horizon only to the bad rather than the worse. Yeah, and I think that that's, you know, something that's shared across the world. Mm. You know, and I think that, and this is, I guess, the key point that I'll articulate again, I guess, is, you know, when we talk about, when Australians talking about America, we're talking about Australia in a lot of ways, and we're, we're, we're concerned basically that similar things as happening in America could happen here. And right? I think, this is yeah. what's a concern of the right and a concern of the left at the same time. And I guess that, that that's the, the like the thing too, where you know the problem with the the if if one nation represents the worse, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, the bad and, and like and their main thing is immigration. Yeah. The formal anti-racists of just the bad. Yeah. the coalition and the Labour Party have yeah. already been torching her and killing people in camps. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah. like, I don't, I, when I say that, I then find really kind of flippant, like saying, well, maybe, you know, in some ways the worst is still worse, <laughs> right? Yeah. You know, like, um, as much as Clinton's claims aren't... And I think that's a really hard thing to kind of tack, like, mm. like I, I feel if you said that these positions were the same, yeah. even because Clinton's politics only have a kind of, like, representational diversity. Yeah. If it's a choice between a representational diversity and a more intensely racialized politics. Yeah. Then that counts, right? Like it, no, the, 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 there is a different like I think people have been making this claim when Trump talks about building a wall that the yeah. Obama administration has already deported countless amounts of people without yeah. documentation. But there is something different between yeah. the like, at least under Obama, it has to hide itself in a way. Yeah, you know, while and while the full and this is kind of I'm kind of channeling Jack's position on torture, which is like everyone know torture already exists, always happens, all yeah. states torture. 
but there's yeah. a crucial difference when states no longer feel the need to lie about torture. torture. Yeah. Like, uh, that says that something terrible has happened. <laughs> so, you know, yeah. like, this, there's something terrible that would happen if you go from a position where people are already being deported, mm. and that's really fucked up and horrible, to then Trump's no longer having any level of pretense about it. Yeah, totally. You know, like, happy to miss... Like, um, happy to identify all undocumented migrants in the US as, like, rapists and criminals. Yeah. You know, and I think, like, you know, I was... I'm a quite... I'm, I get moved quite easily. I watched this Clinton video where it's this family of um, people who've migrated from Mexico and their son dies in the army and then they get citizenship, right? Mm. And it's, like, it's hard not to... Like, that's... That's a tough story, right? Like, yeah, and yeah. It, it's some level if the Clintons claim is that against this family whose son has died fighting we'll in the US Army being deported, right? Like, yeah. with that well, in mind, so for me, like yeah. when I when I find that we're finishing on they're all bad, yeah, that jars me back, you know, and I don't know what like the political orientation around that is. Because ultimately, if we're talking about struggles, yeah, like how that yeah. navigates, yeah, nav- navigates that position. I mean, I think you know, if we're talking about struggles and you talk about politics, I think you know, you, the ele- this election is a great example of how they're not really connected. Fundamentally, mm. I think that the politics of what's going on, the Democrats and the Republicans, is in many ways like a shadow boxing game with the actual social movements. Mm-hmm. With the struggles of undocumented migrants, with the struggles of the Black Lives Matter movement, with the struggles of now Native American, well, not now, but there's a, it's a long-running struggle, but the struggle for clean water, for yeah. you know, against against mining, that you know, what they're doing is they can on the, the political level is this kind of shadow boxing. Mm. I think that's happening, and 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 what's really driving it in a way, but also kind of the unspoken aspect of this is all of these are these social movements that are happening. That are, as you said, we said that are exciting, and, and, and a lot of ways aren't relating to this election. Yeah. What, what what is relating to that? I guess the U.S. election is not just the kind of politics of Trump himself, but the kind of alt nationalist, white national, alt right, uh, white nationalist, yeah, mobilization around Trump. Yeah. So, like Adolf Reed Jr., who I often quite like, has an article in Common Sense from the middle of the year which is vote for the lying neoliberal warmonger, it's important. Yeah. And I don't think like, it's a great piece, but it's trying to v- revive through this. And, you know, for him, like, I know there's that law that as soon as you mention Nazism, you've lost the argument. Yeah. Like, but for him, it's like, well, you don't want to do the same thing as, like, 19, early 1930s German Communist Party. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Where the Social Democrats were seen to be w- as worse than fascism. You know, that, um, like, mm. there, there can be, like a change in the organisation of the political order, not that I know what that is, that is worse for the operation of emancipatory struggles than the bad of decaying post-liberal democracy. Yeah. No, I mean, I think think you're totally right, and I think, you know, maybe what's the best position here is is what government is going to best not get in the way (laughs) of the rise of these social movements. Mm. and maybe even allow for a few wins here and there. Yeah. That's interesting. All right, John. Well, let's you, en- you enjoy your night. Let's, let's chat soon. 
You, yeah. You've been listening to Living the Dream, the podcast of the Hoo-Ha Group. Thanks. Beat. I got the mama beat. I 